0: Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. It's important to me that I create representation around the diversity that exists in the environmental sector. And so when I was able to reach Michael Charles through Ohio State University's Indigenous Native American Student Association, I was ecstatic. It's been extremely important for me to find individuals from various backgrounds. And it's been especially important for me to make sure that the various voices from the Native American community and Indigenous an community are heard because our society has historically excluded their voices and it's not right and it's not fair. I'd like to try and change that somehow through this podcast. We have so much more to learn from Indigenous and Native American practices, especially with regards to respect for the earth. Through this process, I have been educating myself about Native American tribes and the history of the Indigenous environmental movement. I will be sharing these resources on Instagram. So please do join us at breaking underscore green underscore ceilings. Again, it's breaking underscore green underscore ceilings. Getting back to why I'm excited and humbled to have Michael on the podcast is because he took the time to talk to me about his journey to becoming involved in the Indigenous youth environmental so movement, representing Native American tribes at the UN and at COP23. Michael is Dene or Navajo. He's currently pursuing his PhD in chemical engineering at Ohio State University. His research explores finding innovative technology solutions that promote sustainability without jeopardizing economic competitiveness. I was interested in learning about how Michael's interest in environmental sustainability defined his academic journey and his role as an organizer and leader within Indigenous youth groups focused on environmental justice. We talk about how Standing Rock and Idle No More inspired him to get involved in the environmental justice movement. He also shares his perspective on the power of Indigenous environmental movements based on his experience and where improvements can be made. We also talk about the role he sees himself playing as a Native American in bringing Indigenous knowledge, culture and values into the national environmental and climate policy agenda. This conversation has humbled and inspired me, and I hope you feel the same way too when you listen to Michael's story. I hope you enjoy. So we'll start off with introductions because I believe you said that typically what you do is you'll introduce yourself in your native language and then kind of translate for us. So let's go with that.
1: Sure. So hello, my name's Michael, uh, I just introduced my kind of family to you or my clan system. Um, so what I explained was basically on my mom's side of the family, she's European or Billigana or white, all similar words in our <laughs> language. And then on my dad's side, on his mother's side, we come from the salt people and then on his dad's side we come from the Mexican Navajo clan.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for explaining that. I think it's really a beautiful way for I think human beings to just like introduce themselves and I was thinking to myself I should start doing that. Just introduce myself in my language and I think it's it's a way to kind of preserve it. So, it's a great idea. So, you know, as you mentioned, part of your heritage is is Navajo and it made me a little bit curious about how your identity as Navajo has shaped your perception around nature. And since much of the conversations in this podcast focus on environmental issues, I thought that would be a great place for us to kind of start to talk about your background and your identity as, in a sense.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. I think a lot of just kind of growing up, I kind of grew up in what we call an, as an urban Indian or someone who kind of grew up in more of a either off reservation or kind of in a city area. Yet I didn't really grow up in a city. So I moved away from Arizona when I was pretty young. My family moved up to Colorado. And we were living kind of just in the foothills of the mountains for a while and not any place I would call a city. There's about 5,000 people in, in our town limits. And then the other place we lived after that, and which was 15 minutes down the road, had about 70,000. So Never really was living in a city, but I think one thing that was interesting was how much kind of my experience growing up as Diné or as Navajo kind of relied on my trips back and forth between where I lived with my parents and then kind of visiting our family on the reservation. And one thing I think was funny is I don't think I ever realized I hadn't really been on a vacation that wasn't for visiting family back on the reservation or like a sibling soccer tournament. Those are like the only times we left. That's great. So, I, and I, I think it's interesting because for a really long time, I kind of grew up where my culture was and, and it is a very place-based thing. But for a long time, it meant that I only was Diné or Navajo when I was back home or like around the rest of my family. Mm-hmm. It was when I was you know, at my grandma's house listening to the language and, and hearing it all around me. It's when we got up and made the fire to start the day to make sure that the house was warm and it was kind of in those simple practices that you do when you're back home that really, to me, kind of built who I was and what I understood as it meant to be Diné, Navajo, or even on a broader scale, Indigenous. But I don't think I really carried much of my culture with me or understood what that meant when I left our family down there. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of that started developing once I moved away from home, once I went off to college, went to my undergrad in New York. And I think that played a big role of trying to figure out my experience with nature, how much of that was through my cultural lens or just through being a young kid who loved being outside and, and exploring. But it definitely developed more from a the world's really cool. It's beautiful and I can run around and and nature gave me a lot of kind of like recreation, gave me a lot of ways to kind of be by myself and and walk around. And I've always loved kind of running and hiking and that was definitely one thing that you would kind of always find me outside, but it wasn't necessarily too much more than the recreation of the outdoors. And I think a lot of the development that I've had around kind of my relationship to nature has been trying to really understand not just from our culture as Navajo, but from all the other Indigenous peoples and and communities that have welcomed me since I've left home. I think I've learned a lot about kind of the spirituality and the relationship with between ourselves and earth and really tried to focus on what does it really look like to have a relationship Mm -hmm. with the beings around me with understanding really how Earth has provided for us and our people over our histories. And I think that's really kind of shaped a lot of how I view nature and and has really switched around from this is something that's really beautiful to look at and and to enjoy in, in terms of running around and just exploring, but has really shifted to how do I really understand the land as, as a history and, and a story that tells, yeah, that does tell the story of the people who were here and, and the ways that we should live from that.
0: Yeah, there's something that you said earlier on about how, you know, when you had more contact with your family and with your people in a sense, like your tribe in a sense you thought less about it, I guess, because you were exposed to it often. And then when you leave home, you think more about sort of your identity and what it means in this like new environment. And I feel like I can relate to that because, you know, growing up in Kenya, rather, I grew up mostly around the Indian community. And so I I didn't really think so much about the history of Indians in, in Kenya or like in India. And we learned about that stuff. But I think once I came to the US, I was more hyper-aware and more curious to learn about the Indian culture and about South Asians and also the history of South Asians in, in Kenya and in Africa and in former British colonies. And then just speaking to your experiences of being in nature and being curious about it. That's something I think a lot of youth appreciate and love nature. And so it's sort of like free range for them. And I think that's the best age to To have anyone exposed to nature and build an appreciation for it so that's kind of that's beautiful there's also this one element that you kind of mentioned is you know you are what you would call an urban indian so you kind of had a duality in your experiences where you would go to visit your family on the reservation as often as you could but then you also lived in Outside of the reservation, or like, you know, like regular, <laughs> you, not regular, I don't know how to define it, but like a more westernized culture, right? Did you recognize that there was a duality in how you lived your life? And if you did, then how did you navigate between both those cultures? Because your mother is, you mentioned European and your dad is Native American. So that was at home as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think one thing that's pretty I guess relevant or interesting in that sense was kind of just the way that we think about kind of what culture is and I think for sure like I didn't grow up thinking like wow i I didn't think about like the words mixed race or like that duality of what it looked like when I was back home in Colorado or with my family and, and back home to where we're really from in Arizona on our reservation and it's the fact that kind of when you grow up, I feel like you're learning culture as kind of a practice and not really as a base of knowledge or yeah, you you don't really thinking like, oh, these are all stories I'm supposed to learn or this language is something I should be memorizing right now or really paying attention to. Never really thought about that as a kid. It was more of, oh, I'm back home and these hills are kind of where our family's from and I'm just gonna run around in the dirt because I really like to explore. I like to have space and I remember like sledding on all these like hills that are basically just red sand and coming in just completely dirty and and I would always get in trouble because it meant I had to basically just be like hosed off and you never knew how much I mean like water was kind of hard to come by in that really? area so you were just kind of that kid who didn't really think about anything and just ran off and then your mom comes back and yells at you and grandma throws <laughs> you in a tub and starts throwing buckets of water on you but. I think it's funny that like, that was just kind of normal. I never thought about that. And then I would just go back to school back as the only Native kid. I think my, me and my siblings were the only Native kids in that whole school that mm. we grew up in. And you just didn't really think that other kids did other things differently. You just didn't really think about it. Right. Like, oh, cool. Your family went on vacation too. And you never really thought that like for their spring break, they were... Out a beach in Florida or something and you were in the desert, that meant like nothing to you as being different. right? And I think it was kind of acknowledging those practices that you kind of just grew up with or some of the things that were norms when you were in that area. And, and like I said, a lot of culture for us really is that place-based knowledge and just random things I realized like I know that other people don't know just because I grew up a bit differently and didn't really think about that. But I think in terms of how do you bring that kind of duality together. It was kind of when I moved away and I put myself in a Native American community. And so I, when I went to college, I lived in an all-Native dorm. It was like a program house. And so we were in...
0: And that was in Cornell,
1: right? Yeah, I was at Cornell, Ithaca, New York. And we all lived in a place called Agwego on, on Cayuga land. And we learned a lot about the Haudenosaunee people, but we also had a community that wasn't just a bunch of college kids who left home for the first time but we had kind of our teachers our faculty we had spiritual leaders from from the local people's like who were pretty invested in us just as humans which was great mm-hmm. to have them around because a lot of us were either coming from the reservation for the first time or this kind of urban indian mixed heritage background and all trying to kind of figure out together what does it look like to be indigenous on this college campus where we're all kind of off on our own for the first time and I think that was what really helped through that duality was just kind of being in that community of, all right, I guess we're all trying to figure this out. And we got a share of knowledges right. and things that and stories that felt very familiar from home, but then also got to like complain about, you know, organic chemistry together at the same time <laughs> and like, how are we going to get through this? Right. And that was kind of that first experience of understanding kind of the knowledge and the practices that we do back home and trying to really think how do we still apply who we are when we're away from that area. Mm-hmm. And something I never did as a child growing up in Colorado but had really aimed to do once I kind of was off on of my own and was learning about other people trying to learn how to do that too. And I think it's really important to make sure that that our culture is a lot more than just, you know, a knowledge or something we know about history or fun facts mm-hmm. about who we are. Right. Or even just the fact that we have some of the bloodline but really making sure that we acknowledge why we're supposed to know these things in terms of the knowledge, in terms of the stories, the language, and and try to figure out what, what are the practices that we're supposed to be really learning from this.
0: Right. I think it's great that you've had an opportunity to have a support system in terms of just a dorm dedicated to like the Native Americans. I think that's excellent. When I was in college, we had a dorm that was dedicated only to women, which was the only one. And we were kind of pariahed <laughs> in, a, in a weird way, but from that we, in a sense, we were a hard, and I think we provided each other with some sort of like support system outside of the classroom. So there was that kind of camaraderie there as you were going through this journey of being in academia. Tell us a little bit about your academic choices that you've made and how you're looking to use that to build towards, I guess, the change that you're looking for in in this world. Sure.
1: Yeah. And I think 16 to 18 year old me would never have guessed I would end up where I'm at now. <laughs> yeah. In terms of actually chasing through academia. Yeah. And so when I like when I was in high school, I think I I just really didn't think anything about school. And then it was one of those things where I like did well at but didn't think again like just I never asked how other people did at school I just assumed everyone was everyone got good grades and kind of went through it no one else like I didn't take it very seriously I kind of assumed everyone else did the same thing never really asked questions around about the people around me and at least when it came to school it was just like something I kind of did so that I could go off and play sports and and hang out with friends and I don't think anyone told me like what colleges were look like, like where I should apply or anything until I took an ACT. I feel like no one really took me seriously through the school in terms of sure he gets good grades, but like he's kind of a troublemaker and mm. <laughs> he, he's kind of hit or miss. We'll see. Oh. But then like once like these standardized tests came out, then it was like people kind of paid attention and were like, oh, you should apply here or do this, and I was like. Uh, okay, sure, why not? Like, My whole plan for college was just to go to Dartmouth because I had a cousin that went there and we just had heard rumors about their native program and including funding and things like that. And we're like, oh yeah, natives go to Dartmouth. That's what I should do. (laughs) So I just felt like I didn't have to look for for colleges. Right. But somehow through all of that, I got on a, a Dartmouth recruitment list and through that ended up getting on other email lists. And that's how I ended up Kind of knowing about Cornell, and I ended up doing like a visit when I was a senior in in high school, and I went with my dad, and we went to a few different colleges, and that just kind of came and happened. And and all I knew about school was I was really bored in it, and I didn't like it, and so when it came to like what should I study, I just had like one person's dad in high school who was a chemical engineer, and was like, yeah, this is difficult, and you'd be good at it, you should try it. And I was like, all right, I'm down for a challenge. Someone told me it was hard, and. Then, kind of came into my first year, and the whole, all the talk and conversation was like, "This is here to weed you out, and like, you need to like really focus, or like, or just step back and find a new major." And I was like, "All right, well, if it's difficult and they're trying to weed me out, I guess I should try it." That sounds (laughs) interesting.
0: It's a challenge.
1: Yeah, and I felt like I just kind of chased the challenge and never really thought about like what I would do with it or what I wanted to do. I was just like, "Ah, it's difficult, and I'm bored in school, so I should do something that's not boring." And I was definitely way in over my head my first year. I I struggled a lot trying to keep up with other people and just kind of acknowledging like a lot of these people went to very different schools that (laughs) took academics seriously since, you know, they were freshmen and like they had been talking about their college, like what was expected of them for college since, you know, they were really young with their parents and families. And I thought it was really interesting of like people coming in with like all these AP credits that just, You know, had like a whole year of college done when they were when they came in and people had taken classes that I'd never even heard of while they were in high school. And I was like, all right, interesting. This is all on a curve. I guess I'm gonna have to work really hard. And it's one of those things where I just had to like really keep learning how to learn. And it actually got easier, I think, after every year as the classes got harder because everyone else also was like less familiar. Mm -hmm. And so I was like finally, okay, like cool, I can keep up. This is great. And then got like really used to it. And I was like, I kind of not that I really ever enjoyed the classes, but I enjoyed like learning. I think I really learned that. Like I like to really think about things and I like to explore them differently. Like If I did a problem and someone else did it and we went and like compared our answers and they were like, I was just going off in a completely different way. And they're like, no, this is how you do it. But then somehow we came back to the right answer. All I was interested in was proving why I wasn't that wrong, <laughs> which... Then at the end of this, somehow I ended up being like, well, maybe after some internship experience in chemical engineering, realized maybe I should try research. Maybe I should kind of take that seriously and figure out how to explore with some of the knowledge I have. And Mm -hmm. I think the thing that really attracted me to research and academia was just that idea that I would know something that no one else in the world would know. It was you, you need to explore and become an expert on something that no one else will be able to do. And like you will have to teach other people how to do that because no one else will know. And I, th- I thought that was a cool idea. And I was like, all right, let's run with it. But I think the ways that my research has kind of transformed was an undergrad, I started my research in biomedical research and was working on kind of different congenital heart defects and was working like in a hands-on lab, was working with mice. And there was just like a lot of things to me that wasn't as fun about that. And I had spent a lot of time traveling. I knew a lot. At this point, I had been working pretty heavily with a lot of other Native students in STEM across the country. And I Mm -hmm. was part of a pretty big network called ASIS or the American Indian Science and Engineering Society. And so I had a lot of ideas of like, and and had been to a lot of conferences where like, how do we use STEM to give back to our people? How do we support our communities? Or what can we do with these degrees afterwards? And... I realized I wanted to really focus on kind of this idea of sustainability that we talked about so much in engineering, but so loosely and not actually in practice. Mm -hmm. And all these ideas that we kind of kept hearing about. And when I was an undergrad, a lot of the Idle No More campaign was happening, (laughs) which was up in Canada against the oil tar sands. And tied to just that idea was also um, the amount of land that was being taken from the indigenous peoples or the First Nations peoples up in Canada. And I was really interested in... I mean, chemical engineering is pretty tied to a lot of, a lot of oil and gas, but also it's, it's tied to just this idea of process design or manufacturing. And when I heard about... like When we think about a lot of these ideas that are large-scale sustainable issues, a lot of that is coming down from these corporations that in, right. in many senses are the ones hiring chemical engineers. So, I really wanted to challenge the whole field and kind of the ideas of, of chemical engineering and wanted to really think about like what has our kind of culture taught us? Like, what is something that I've learned that I can bring to the field of academia that I also noticed had very few slash zero other Native Americans in at any school I've been at and within chemical engineering. And so that was something that I really thought about my last year and senior year. And so now I'm, I'm working on my PhD. At Ohio State. And I'm lucky that I get to work in a lab that focuses on process systems design and engineering. And pretty much my whole focus is on how do we create mathematical frameworks and basically ways to design things that engineers will understand, but that are including ecological systems and the capacity we have around nature and local communities and what are the impacts of each of these systems that we can kind of design better and really understand the costs and impacts of what we're doing and not just kind of assuming that if we design within our boxes, chemical engineers, everything outside of it's from an engineering perspective, we call it an infinite sink in terms of the concentrations will be too low that it won't impact the atmosphere or the heat that we give off will be negligible compared to the amount of space in in the atmosphere. And so it's kind of trying to create a different way that we draw a bigger box around our systems. And I think that kind of thinking is, is really applicable in any field. And and I think in terms of my, my research in science, I kind of want to just kind of keep challenging the field of chemical engineering to keep doing that.
0: Yeah. I feel like we're reaching this point of no return. And because of the increase of severe and intense rather natural events or disasters that are associated with climate change, I feel like That is why we're at a point of no return. And because of that, our professions need to adopt principles of sustainability. I feel like the kind of change that we need to make to either kind of like halt or just slow down the impacts of climate change, that it's got to be efforts that are integrated into each and every element of our very being, in a sense. So... I love that you're doing that. And I didn't know that you could do that in chemical engineering. <laughs> I was just imagining, you know, some guy in a lab coat right next to like huge tanks with some chemicals in them, you know, like Dexter's lab <laughs> <laughs> to think I went to school. <laughs> but that's how I think like in animated forms sometimes. So. There's this element of of you wanting to integrate environmental sustainability into like the technological innovations or ideas that you come up with, but there's another aspect of of your life where you're involved in working with indigenous youth on the environmental front. Could you tell us about sort of how that came about and what were Defining moments in your life where you felt like, okay, I have to play a significant role or I have to contribute towards representing our people. And then also, just especially in the environmental movements.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of that continues to go back to kind of that idea that I I mentioned of within our kind of community of, of Native scholars and academics, there's just this constant reminder that we do have a responsibility to give back to our communities in this idea of like education is an opportunity, but how are we going to use this to kind of keep advancing the opportunities for other Native youth behind us or the, the everyday life quality of our people in our communities? Do we have an opportunity to bring our degrees back home to the actual land? It's like A lot of times when we do get these degrees, there's not really a place for us to work back home. And our culture being so place-based, sometimes that really does put a wedge between choosing your career or choosing to be able to go back home and and participate in that everyday cultural practice. And so I think one thing that I had like continuously has still has been on my mind, I guess, is what is my role to give back and, and how am I going to support and try to fight for a lot of the people that have really put all of this effort and support behind me to get me where I'm at. So that idea of just we're trying to constantly give back, being part of that culture is, is an inherent responsibility, and that's what it really means, I think, to, from a lot of the communities I've been able to work with that are identify as indigenous, trying to really understand like a lot of like, what does that mean on a broader scale? Like we're all different peoples, but wh- how do we get roped in together? What are things that we have in common? That's one I've always noticed is a responsibility to your people. And so I think that was something that I've constantly been trying to figure out. And the other edge of that was not just what am I going to do after I graduate and, and have this degree. But I think one thing that really stuck with me was this idea that if I'm too busy while I'm getting my degree to kind of keep involved with my community or this larger Indigenous community across the country or the world, if I'm too busy to kind of be involved in these communities around me what's going to change after I graduate. Like I'm I'm not going to just all of a sudden, all right, I have a degree. Now I have time and focus to really Mm -hmm. support my community. And so that was one thing I think my even in my first year of my PhD, I was very much set on like I'm just going to get in and get out. I'm going to work really hard and be like all my time is going to go to this and, you know, I'll graduate in three years when our average is five and a half. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the mindset I came in. I took all my classes in year one, pretty much for the whole whole program so that I had time to just focus on my research. Right. And it was just exactly during that year when it was like, well, if I don't slow down, I'm going to miss out on every other opportunity in front of me to do what I say I'm passionate about right. um, and really put that into, <laughs> again, practice. And so I, for me, it was kind of the, one of the pivotal moments was at Standing Rock where I think a lot of people did start kind of waking up to this idea of like, we can do this organization, but we also were seeing a lot of support from an environmental movement. And it was a mixture between this Indigenous movement. We had Native peoples from all over the country and from all over the world coming together to be in physical community there at Standing Rock. We saw a bunch of environmental NGOs kind of show up and support. And we saw, yeah, kind of a whole green movement around this. And that was kind of, to me, a pivotal point. As I mentioned, I had been kind of involved and, and understood some of these issues before, starting with Idle No More through Canada and a few other issues. But I think one of the biggest things to me was when we were talking about Idle No More as just you know five or six young Native students on Cornell's campus that wanted to bring some awareness to other people in the area. We were really focused on here's the land that's being lost by these Indigenous communities. This is what's at stake for them. And because no one else was really joining us in this kind of the way that we were trying to bring this issue to campus, that we didn't really see any sort of greenwashing or or the way that some of the messagings can really just get completely overrun by a larger group. And I think right. one of the things that I was so frustrated with around Standing Rock was I was able to kind of be a part of some of the the marches and and kind of gatherings around a few different cities in the U.S., and was able to play with a drum group and sing at one and march at a few other marches. And I think one thing that was interesting was because it was kind of a big moment, so many environmental NGOs and environmentalists, whatever the right words are, kind of just showed up. And although we saw so much of this kind of abuse and just really...
0: And it was physical abuse. It was violence, really.
1: Right that and then along with kind of the more emotional turmoil and kind of psychological of, of the digging up of sacred sites of really just the trespassing on their land to begin with there was a lot of other things at stake but when we saw a lot of the kind of green movement come in we saw a lot more of the messaging being around oil is bad and not we need justice for what's happening to these people and that was kind of a big wake up call to me of why is this movement that cares so much about sustainability only focusing on the fact that this is an oil pipeline. And I saw kind of open talking circles at some of these that derailed as far as starting off and from a drum circle and talking about this is what's happening and we need to pray for kind of like our imprisoned relatives and somehow derail all the way to we need solar powered cell phones. Like the way messaging was just constantly derailed away from kind of the safety and human rights of the indigenous peoples there was kind of really concerning. And for whatever reason, maybe again, it's the challenge. But when I saw something so messed up, I decided I'm going to get involved with that. And so...
0: Yeah, take the power.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so that was actually the year when I first applied to go to the UN and their climate talks. And I went with a group called Sustain Us. And and it's still an organization I work with, but it was all youth-led and youth-organized organization that basically tries to train and empower young people to show up to these kind of bigger moments and, and train them for how do we show up to these big conversations and what can we bring as a youth voice. And so I, I kind of joined into that organization through that delegation that year and was able to go to Bonn, Germany back in 2017. And that was kind of the first time I would say I got more into the kind of organizing, the the direct actions. I learned like what all these skill sets were that I didn't really mm-hmm. have, I would say, before. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's really, there's a true strategy that goes into creating and powering a movement, really. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh.
1: No, you're good. But, I, was, I was pretty much done with that thought. I think the only other thing I would add is I think it was one of those first times where I had a community around me of other people that thought like organizers and thought like what we imagined the environmental movement to be like. I think before that my most of my community was very scientific based or native based. And you know, we talk about some of these things once in a while, but It wasn't to the extreme of like, this is every conversation. How do we talk political strategy? How do we talk about theory of change? Like All of this was a new world to me. I was like, I usually sit in my room, I do science, I try to figure out hard things and make it happen. But I think when you go into this organizing world, the biggest thing I think I lost was just kind of control. (laughs) When I sit and code... Things that I want to design or things that I'm thinking of, it's a challenge that's between me and I guess mathematics or or (laughs) my research. But once you get into organizing, it's a challenge between not just you, but the community around you and these bigger powers at play.
0: Right. So just to add on to that, you have so many variable factors, which are egos. You have interests, not only group interests, but also individual interests. And you also have the challenge of resources. There are so many, like you said, variables that are kind of like out of your control. And so, you know, when you're part of being an Indigenous youth organizer, tell us a little bit about what is the the stance that sustain us or the groups that you lead, the stance that you take in terms of how you want to be seen, heard, and involved in decision making at the international or even local levels?
1: Yeah, so I think the stance that we see from the youth perspective or from the indigenous youth perspective is like constantly changing, but I think for a long time it was this youth voice that was, the whole message was you're in charge of our future or we're the ones that are going to have to adopt this climate crisis that the generation that's currently making decisions is responsible for. And I think there's some power to that, but I think it's kind of, in my opinion, kind of been over, overdone a little bit. And I think one thing that we need to kind of go back to is this idea of who are we as people? And, and like as young people, you can say that, but in five years, what's your message? Like if you're gonna say that as a youth person, you still have to have a strong message about why do we need justice? What is this that we're fighting for? And I think a lot of that has to go back to this idea of, who you are, what's your own culture, what's your own background to really understand what's really at stake for you and the communities around you. And so I think that's one thing that for me was really important about finding some like identity-based organizing. And I've always, I think, kind of clung to Indigenous community. Anytime I've moved, that's kind of the first place I go to to try and find the people who I, I will call family in that area. And so I think like as Indigenous youth, we're able to kind of take that, that youth messaging in terms of we will be inheriting all of the mistakes of, of the past and this climate crisis is real. It's going to impact us. And we're seeing that now we have a responsibility and obligation to speak up now. And some of that's because we we're speaking up now because other people are making decisions for us. Mm-hmm. But when, you, when we bring in our Indigenous cultures and when we, when we want to talk about like what now Do we want to hear and say together once we organize in that way? And I think that can kind of shift a bit into not just talking about us, but bringing in our histories and our ancestors and the cultures that we know around our ceremonies, around our relationships with nature, kind of understanding this interconnectedness. It's something that we can bring into our messaging to really bring a much stronger voice. Like, yes, we can talk about the youth things, but we can also talk about what it means as an Indigenous person, what are things that we are losing and, and susceptible, but also how are ways that we've brought power to these movements before? How are ways that we've already stood and protected? And I think that's also important to do because we get to not just focus on being victimized and saying that like when, if we show up to the UN, for example, and we want to tell a story, it doesn't always have to be this sad story of what's happening back home, and if you don't do something, this is what's at stake it's really if you don't do something we're still going to keep doing things, but you just realize some of the, like this is also your responsibility and so I think that it's important for anyone in in this fight to really make sure that we 're bringing a voice of power as well as not just being a victim and yes, there's a lot to that, and a lot of truth that makes it feel very this whole situation hopeless and full of despair, but there There are these communities stepping up and we're seeing a lot of global movements and that's promising in a lot of ways that we can see that if people care, there's something there that we can now start moving. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's really important in terms of Indigenous youth to understand that we have these messages and these stories. It's not really centered around us, but it's centered around the histories of our people. Right. And that's something very unique.
0: Yeah. Another thing that I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is to really just highlight the humanity of the movement, right? Like earlier on, you were talking about how in Standing Rock, these mainstream environmental groups came in and were making the agenda just like oil exploration. But it's a lot more than that. If these type of unsustainable projects keep going forward, you jeopardize the very existence of A culture, a large culture of people who I believe, frankly, are a key element of protecting the natural environment. And so, am I hearing you correctly?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that's a large part of it. It's it's the humanity of realizing it's not just an environmental thing. If we understand that interconnectedness, or the other word we always hear a lot is intersectionality, you understand that when we're talking about something like a pipeline, it's not just oil versus renewable energy, that's not really the fight in a lot of cases. There's a lot more to it. And for instance, something like Standing Rock is when these decisions are made for us, it's also a complete undermine of a whole history of treaties that acknowledge our sovereignty as indigenous nations. And when you kind of try to exert power like that, you're just undermining a history of of treaties along with whatever else is at play in the environmental realm. But it's important to understand that because i also think and, and this is something that we say a lot i think when especially when we as an indigenous community when we give kind of interventions or formal speeches at the un one of the, the facts we always highlight is that indigenous peoples do basically caretake for about 80% of the world's biodiversity mm-hmm. so the easiest thing you could do as as someone in charge of policy international accountability would be to ensure that Indigenous peoples are able to have the land they currently have, if not more, and increasing Mm -hmm. the access that they have to their sacred lands. And I think that's just something that's always interesting. It's like the the easiest thing you could do is just enable us to kind of keep doing what we're doing. We'll take care of the land, just make sure that we are protected. And if you protect our human rights, that's probably one of your easiest solutions to do. (laughs)
0: Right, right. And I think it's just not only letting the indigenous groups do what they do, but do more. Because in many of our countries around the world, the indigenous communities have been extracted from these natural, I mean, from their homes. And so the environmental health of these spaces is actually degrading because they don't have, or the natural ecosystems don't have that kind of caretaking that is based on the principles of indigenous groups' values. And, and that's a fact, really. It's not really an, an opinion. So you mentioned earlier that there's a diversity within the Native American indigenous groups, and that's beautiful in of itself, but it's also a challenge when you're trying to lead a movement where you're speaking with one voice. Tell us a little bit more specifically about what that challenge is and sort of your recommendation on how to of create a more cohesive effort?
1: Yeah, I think the most concrete example I can think of that comes to mind all the time is of this idea of how do we create one strong voice, but still acknowledge the diversity of its peoples. Mm-hmm. And one thing that always comes to mind is, is the first two years that we were working, that, that I was able to show up and work at the UN with the International Indigenous People's Forum on Climate Change. It's basically the, the formal constituency or body of Indigenous peoples that show up to these conventions. And I think one thing that really shocked me was that the first two years we were fighting over and over and over again for this kind of platform and this voice. And and it would be this one seat that we had at the table as Indigenous peoples globally. Mm. And we were constantly frustrated with the disagreements we had amongst our peoples. We represent seven regions across the world and, and a region being something as large as russia or the pacific or north america mm-hmm. right and i would be surprised if we could come to an agreement within one of those regions and so when we we would get frustrated because we couldn't come to an agreement across seven regions of indigenous peoples globally right on, on things like put together a two-minute speech that tells us how you feel and represents your communities or some, something like that and you're like yeah, that's
0: that's pretty bit, much yeah.
1: impossible.
0: <laughs> it's not also fair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. But, but here's your one voice. And it was one of those things that was like, we really had to lean into that frustration and understand like, how do we become an effective group that can take advantage of the opportunity we're given, but make sure we're still constantly pushing and fighting for more and and making sure everyone else realizes how ridiculous it is to be like, all right, Indigenous voice, go. And that happens all over the movement. And it's a very tokenizing experience to kind of have to often speak on behalf of not just your nation or or your culture, but but also just Indigenous people generally. And I think it's interesting, yeah, how, how often we are asked to do that. Yeah, But I think it's also important that like, we don't shy away from those opportunities because it's important that unindigenous voice is heard. It's really important to make sure that the broader movement does understand that. But I think one thing is that can come into practice from especially in Indigenous peoples put in the situation is just making sure that it's understood who you are, where you come from, and that you're not just global indigenous voice but like i'm i'm responsible for my understanding of what it means to be indigenous or my understanding of what it means to be Dene. i'm speaking from my experiences and the the peoples and communities that i've learned from Mm -hmm. i think that can really help (laughs) other people understand that like all right we don't want to put people in a box but we're just going to have you come speak and, and, and represent a different point of view and you can kind of explain what that looks like from your perspective a bit more
0: yeah I think it's just so ironic that the United Nations (laughs) has just one seat for indigenous people. That's kind of ridiculous because how do you expect thousands of different groups or tribes to speak with one voice? They have different experiences, different cultures, different histories. I think that's completely unfair and shame on you, UN.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it's... It's not like a voting voice or a voting seat at the table. It's a, it's a place where we're put into a constituency like, hey, you can show up and speak when civil society is allowed in the doors and uh-huh. we give them a time to speak. You're one of the time slots. And so I think what's interesting is when you think about it, if just in the US, we have around you know 550 federally recognized native nations. It's a bit more than that. But if you think about that, I think the U.N.'s only around 200 parties. If just the US was allowed to bring in the Native nations that they have recognized in whatever form their sovereignty, if each one of those showed up to the UN and had a voice and a voting seat at the table, the UN would almost triple right. or, or more than triple. So that's just like one thought of the lack of representation.
0: Yeah, indeed. I mean, just like there is, quote unquote, a a proportional representation of each nation in the United Nations. I think that kind of proportionality or that logic needs to also be applied for indigenous peoples. And then we have, of course, the Security Council, which is just like a bunch of, you know, Western, quote unquote, developed nations who are making decisions on like major issues for the rest of the world but then again i am not going to rant about the un and the only reason why i like i'm kind of like honestly irritated by the united nations is because my degree was in international relations and i wanted to work at the un and just having an experience of going into these assemblies and seeing how decisions were being made were quite frustrating but just going back then to you know the the indigenous youth movements like where do you all get your power from what is The force that drives you.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's different for every single individual who shows up in the room. But I think one thing that I see a lot of a common source would be one being that responsibility to community. We recognize that our communities are vulnerable in the times of climate change, climate crisis, and that's one thing. Is any anything that any role we can play to support and help our people, we usually step up to and i think another big big power that i see that a lot of people stepping into whether or not they realize it is that i think maybe it's just something i reflect a lot on and then i see kind of play out in people is that that we kind of every generation of our of our people of our ancestors really have had a battle they've all had our own fights and sometimes it feels like yours is the biggest sometimes it feels like yours is so minimal compared to what your ancestors went through and so i think that's one other thing I always think of is that our people are warriors and and each generation has its battle. And so that's, that's a power. It's our responsibility to step up and fight this one so that our future generations can exist and then also have their battles to fight. I see that as a big reason why I feel a need to kind of step in. And I think the other thing is kind of really understanding the beauty of community is When we see all these things, and and even despite now, with whatever news it is, and we see a lot of people kind of anxious and and we see a lot of the, the depression around it, the only real way I think to come together and build hope amongst some of these issues that just seem like we cannot tackle and we cannot really defeat the bigger systems at play, the hope really comes from being in community. And so I think for me, I love to show up to these things, whether or not it's difficult, because at the same time, I get to get deeper into these relationships I have with people. I get to understand what's going on in, in other people's communities just as much as I get to share what's happening in ours. And, and we really get to think about what does that future look like? And and really having the ability to dream together is really mm-hmm. really important. Cause without the hope, it's there's not really reason to fight, right? So I think that's a big thing too.
0: You mentioned something about how our ancestors or our elders rather previous generations had their own struggles as youth i think like we can learn from the successes and the mistakes of our elders so are there specific ways that we can kind of build upon what our elders did for us in these movements and if so what are some of these specific things that we can build upon like where were they successful that we can kind of hone in on?
1: Yeah. I think one thing that's just kind of very simple and comes from a very individual level in a lot of ways too is bringing in one thing that you brought up as, as a challenge of, of organizing in general is, is egos. And one thing that I think is really important of understanding the battles that have happened in the past is that a lot of us like to come up here and make big statements about how we're, we're the first group to do this or we're the first at this. And if you really understand the battles that have happened, you need to show up to this with a lot of humility. And, and the ego can kind of go to the side when you understand that like, yeah, I'm here. But the only reason I can do what I'm doing is because of the years of fighting and, and battling that others have done. And you really need to understand, I mean, the phrase that comes to mind, whether it's cliche or not, is that we're, we're really standing on the shoulders of giants and i think that it that's really important to understand it also you need to know the history of the movement or the movement from your own culture so like for instance what have indigenous elders what have they been fighting for you know 70 years ago 60 years ago the ones that are still here doing the work that are kind of older in in our movement what have they seen throughout their lifetime i think a lot of times in our youth movements we kind of forget to stop and slow down and ask and one thing that comes to mind is Trying to really think about how do, we, how do we make sure our movements are moving theirs forward as well and understanding and not being mindful enough to make sure it's not kind of conflicting or, or really doing any drawback. And I think one thing we constantly see within movements is kind of that balance, that kind of conflict between do we fight inside or outside of politics? And we, we know that politics is slow and doesn't always acknowledge and work for our people. Yeah. But how do we also respect those that have been? fighting for decades to make sure that we do have these small wins in politics that have been fighting for the voice? How do we make sure that we don't undermine all of their work by saying something as as like, politics won't work? Or, you know, there's just a lot of ways that we can kind of shut ourselves down from a whole different way right. of thinking. And I think one thing we hear a lot in the Indigenous communities are, our people don't do that, or or we're not politicians. Like, there's a lot of things that I think we hear in our communities. And I th- I mean, there's a lot of truth. And and I understand where a lot of that comes from. But I think it's also really important to think about, we have been sitting at these tables and showing up to the UN since the first climate negotiations. And and Mm -hmm. if you show up now, you probably will meet some of those people that have been there from the beginning. And before we start talking about how our people don't do that, what what are we learning from those that have stepped into that, have been uncomfortable, and have been some of the first ones to step away and try that? try something new. And we're all kind of fighting for the same thing. So how do we make sure that we're supporting people in that way? So yeah, I think in terms of the ideas of what can we learn from our ancestors and elders is similar to like our cultures. We we know that our practices come from things our ancestors taught, our ancestors practiced, that they carried on in whatever form, whether story, song, language, oral tradition, practice. I think there's a lot of ways that it's similar. We, we should be constantly thinking about what as our cultures teach us from the way that they've lived for millennia? What can we learn about our daily practices and lifestyles today that can help in terms of pushing back against the current cultural norms of, of society? And then also thinking from our elders who are alive today, what, what are those that we can sit down and what are the right questions to ask? Like, let's not just focus on today's moment and now, but really understand what has been the movement across the last 50 years, because I think that's just as important for us if we want to really build upon something.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I had this like random thought while you were speaking about how, you know, why is it that youth movements just in general don't borrow as much or even acknowledge kind of the the work of previous generations. And I think there's sort of like this audacity of the youth movement to think like, oh, that's the way the old folks did it. Like that doesn't work anymore, you know, kind of thing. And it's something that I feel if as youth, we actually learned like you said from the previous generations and what they kind of did to see some kind of success we're not going to be reinventing the wheel of like change and at least just like the images that I have seen or come across is like with indigenous movements from like the global stance is that they always show up they're there right and I think there's some value or just power in that it's just showing up even if like you feel like this is not your space or if you feel like your voice is not being heard show up and say something and you may not be heard like today but you will be tomorrow kind of thing you know and that's sort of like my reaction or the thought that I had when when you said that you've heard in your community that some people have said like that is not for us we define what is for us. And I think like a powerful movement is everywhere. A powerful movement shows up, that kind of thing. Okay, I got it. That's what I was going to (laughs) say through my ramble. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Yeah, and I actually have one thought that kind of goes along that lines. is you don't, like you said, you don't know what power you will have of just showing up. And I think one thing that really comes to mind was a conversation that really did tilt a lot of momentum towards what we call the indigenous people's platform now that has only been formalized and operationalized in the last about year. But I do remember one of the meetings where it was Chief Howard Thompson from the Mohawk people, the Haudenosaunee, showed up and just opened it in a prayer. I don't know if he even spoke the rest Mm. of the time of that meeting but just said, I'm going I want us all to come together. And we had, you know, representatives from a lot of different political parties and nations. And he was just invited and we're like, we made sure that there was time for him to open that up with a prayer. And he did it in his own traditional language. No one probably understood a thing that was being said. I don't even remember if there was a paraphrase or interpretation. I think he might have just gone up there and spoken his language and kind of did his prayer and mm. then just sat down. And the way that that conversation actually did shift in turn really brought momentum in the negotiation process to help us pass along this Indigenous Peoples platform. And as I mentioned, I don't know if he spoke again, a lot of other people, Indigenous Peoples that have been working on this were there and and kept the conversation going. But that's the power of, of showing up. Like We live such different cultures a lot of times in society or have very different practices that a lot of others don't have that you don't know what just bringing and sharing one piece of you can really do to shape that Mm -hmm, conversation mm
0: -hmm. yeah when you were explaining that story i I was just kind of imagining being there and just the the energy and the power of this one individual bringing all of this aura or this energy to him and that like impacts the room and mobilizes them to kind of want to do something right those moments are so rare those type of moments kind of stay with you, I think, forever. So thank you for sharing that story. (laughs) So we're kind of on this theme of wanting to create some sort of change. And we're talking about change from like your own personal perspective, but also from your perspective as an individual who's been part of like a group movement in a sense. So what is your vision for change and what role do you see yourself playing in that change?
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> million a million dollar question. <laughs> I think that's a huge question. <laughs> when it comes to the, the vision for change, I think for me, it's really going to be a movement guided by what we in Diné or in Navajo call Hojo. And I think it's. Kind of the meaning behind that is is something that's really centered around kind of balance and and beauty and harmony and love. I think those are all words that explain this concept. But it's this idea that our movement's going to need a lot of different roles and it's going to need a lot of trust that other people can fulfill their roles and also trust that we can teach our roles and, and kind of phase in and out. It's the only way that we'll be able to get rest. And I think it's really important that we understand that these roles there's not one one right way to do it. I hear a lot of people talking about, you know, we need to take to the streets, the, the government's not working for us. And and yes, I'm all for it. I think we should be the ones gathering in, in mass populations, maybe not right now with Corona, but <laughs> we need to gather, we need to have these messages heard and we need to let people know that we aren't happy with, with everything. And I think it's also important that we're fighting outside and those that have, expertise and specialties to go ahead inside the halls or even those that don't need to go in and have their voices heard. They need to go and bring themselves, as we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, prayer, songs, ceremony, whatever can help bring a piece of them that they think will help other people really to embrace a different direction. And so I think it's really important for us to understand all these different roles again, I think it comes down to community. Like, If we're going to have a vision for change, we need to really build that community that we're supporting each other because we have to understand that there are things that are out of our control. I think that was something I talked right. about initially too about that idea of controls. Like we can put all of our effort and we can put so much energy into this, but there's also the chance that we will lose or that what we set out to do might not happen this time or in this moment. And so we need to build that community so that we're prepared to weather those losses. Yeah, I think it's important that when we talk about these different roles that we are in communication and, and open to learning. I think we're in a time too, where a lot of us have gotten very stubborn and we don't want to listen to other people because sometimes, yeah, it can be very tiring and there are times we just need to shut off and not hear from people that disagree. Or, or sometimes you think that you know people are so far off in a different World, that there will be no productive conversation. I think a lot of times that is very true and does happen. But I think our movement will need to kind of grow in patience and love and slow down to an ability where we're able to listen to those that voice their concerns in a way that we often shut down to. And so I think the way that we can really build is by taking that time. And maybe, maybe that's not everyone's role, but there might be roles. I think that's also important that I don't always see. And I think it's that idea of like social distancing already, but through the way that we're able to just spout our opinions and, and thoughts onto platforms without having to really address someone in eye to eye. And, and I think that can be very, very harmful and dangerous. But I think there's a lot of value to sitting down and really building a relationship with someone who may disagree completely with you and being able to take that time to build a relationship first, maybe before you even talk about the uh, the things you disagree with and try to understand what you can talk about and agree with. And I think something like that is simple enough resistance that we're not seeing in, in our movements. We're not seeing, in, especially within the US, the way that we're really divided across political parties. But I think that's also just as important that we're putting our fights all over and kind of in every aspect. And I think that's something that I've always seen as important, whether or not it's the environmental movement or the way that I've always wanted to see Indigenous representation increase, where I think it's just as important for us to have Native lawyers and doctors. And and like we also need those that are our spiritual leaders that stay home and do our cultural practice. And and education doesn't have to be for everyone. But if we really want to see our communities evolve or, or adapt and change into ways that can help the current generation of our people, we need to make sure that we're able to put our people into these different roles. And so I think that's something that I also believe is just something that the movements need. And each of those roles slowing down enough to communicate and understand kind of pros and cons of the type of work they're doing, the, the, what they're healing, what they're harming, I think is important to understand. Because I think that's the only way that we can really move towards a, a holistic fight for justice is to really take that time yeah. to communicate.
0: I think that you should create a Native American movement association and you can be the director of that and that association can be the one that basically gathers everyone's kind of perspectives and their position on various issues and creates sort of like this platform to create different like avenues for change and also different messaging points based on the change you want to create. The Native American Change Association.
1: <laughs> Done.
0: Well,
1: it probably exists, if yeah. we're being honest.
0: Oh. <laughs> yeah. But we need to find them.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, I think the other part of that question, too, of what like role do I play personally? Don't think that that would fit into yeah. my <laughs> strengths where I, <laughs> I think the organizing of and administrating is not my
0: it's not your thing. Not my
1: strong suit. <laughs> but I do really enjoy, I think the role that I see myself playing is one, being able to kind of teach things that I've learned and kind of talk about this mm-hmm. specifically within, you know, one-on-one conversations and mentorship abilities. And also I would say in, in like large kind of formal ways. So like as a as a, a lecturer or or giving a speech to a community that might not know I feel very comfortable in saying, here's my 15 minutes. This is what I want to say. Or let's have a one on one conversation like we're doing for over an hour. I think those are my two roles of passing on things I've learned. And I think I'm also, my role is to bring other people into this movement, especially Indigenous youth. But I don't see myself as like the one continuing to organize them after they come in. I see myself as bringing people into this, helping educate based on what I know and have learned and experienced. And I think the role that I see myself playing, at least for the near future, is going to be very much working on the policy level and doing kind of organizing a lot of, I guess, similar to what you've said, Indigenous people's voices, but into making them very relevant into the conversations that are happening at spaces like the UN. Mm-hmm. I think especially from the young people, there's not, like, no one really wants to do that. It's not fun. And I think in a lot of ways, I just have a lot of preparation and ability to do it. And I feel like that's a responsibility I should take on and just play out that role for a little bit of I'm happy to do the boring work while you all go and make the big messages and I will show up to your ceremony, your rally, your protest. I will be there. But I think the things that I've really been prepared to lead in the near future will be kind of translating a lot of that voice into specific text and policies.
0: Mm -hmm. It sounds like you would be the teacher, the translator, sort of the bridge between whoever you're representing and the agency that you're trying to influence, in a sense.
1: Yeah, I think that's spot on.
0: That's good. So, you know, one of the things that I kind of try to be very cognizant about is that they're individuals within groups. And, you know, on this podcast, even though the individual brings themselves to this space. I want us to be very careful to know that we're not necessarily representing a group of people, that you're representing sort of like your own perceptions. For me, that's very important because as a South Asian woman growing up in Kenya and then moving to the US, I've always sort of been like clumped into a group of stereotypes. And so My next question to you is sort of like an extension of what we were talking about in terms of like what role you see as yourself as a change agent. And the question is like, what do you want people to know about you as a person?
1: Yeah, I think in general, (laughs) I think it's really funny that a lot of just depending on the groups that I go and work with, I think a lot of people have different perceptions of me and kind of just in the community, depending on the limited time we have to get to know each other. And I think that's, I always kind of laugh at that. How funny. Yeah, just like the the person I show up, a lot of people like, oh, you must be like your daily life must be really just always in, engulfed in these environmental fights and conversations. And that's true to a pretty limited extent. I think growing up, some of my favorite things to do were playing sports and and skateboarding. So like back home, my whole community is basically people I skateboarded with. Those are my closest friends still home. And so like, even just going to college for me was kind of made me the misfit out of that out of that group in mm-hmm. some senses. But it, it's really fun to go back home and and kind of keep sharing these experiences and just seeing how how all of us kind of came together at one time around this sport of kind of being able to creatively express ourselves on on a skateboard. Yet all of us have gone in different ways in life, but being able to bring that back to still having this joy of something we shared 10 to 15 years ago, I think is pretty great. And I think that Kind of my love for sports is similar. I play out here in Columbus, Ohio. I play rugby with a men's team. And the way that I can bring this kind of work and, and my education or even my childhood or background as, as a Diné person, I think really brings so many different ideas together on something like a rugby team. And I learn a lot from the people around me and have tons of great conversations. Yeah, I think it's just so interesting how many different parts of us there always are. And sometimes we only have time to show so many of those. But I think mm-hmm. the, like the three main things that I think consume my time would be one, my research and my my music and and rugby. And I think those are things that depending on what you know me from, you might not realize the other ones are very important to me too. But I think that's something I've always strived for in my life was finding a balance of my time and my focus. And there are times to dive in and you know spend all-nighters focusing on one thing. And then there are times to really make sure that your days just kind of put you all over the place and and you get to try so many different new things, meet so many new people. And I think that's one thing that has always been very important to me is I guess trying new things and meeting new people.
0: Yeah. You make a very good point. We have different sides to ourselves. And just based on what you've kind of shared with us so far, you just seem like a really well-rounded individual, so (laughs) because you have a focus on your academics, but also in terms of like the contributions that you play within, you know, Sustainus, for example, but then you also balance that out with your passion for sports and for music and It sounds like you just really know when to kind of remove yourself from stressful situations or balance them out before any kind of burnout happens, which I think is so rare. I don't think I have kind of mastered that in any way. So I feel like you kind of sharing some of your strategies that gives me some ideas and how to be more balanced. So then we're getting here into our lightning round and I'll ask you sort of like a series of five questions and the first thing that comes to your mind, you can answer it. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced
1: you the most? And these are supposed to be quick responses. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Go. (laughs) Okay. I think the thing I heard that stuck with me the most recently was kind of a story/slash prophecy I heard from an elder from the Dene, First Nations group up in Canada. And it was the story about basically how we've expected people to come And, and we've our ancestors have known that what I've heard, the white man will basically come and they'll take, they'll be looking for gold and they'll be looking for oil and they'll get it and time will pass and we we expect them to come back again. And the next time they'll be they'll be looking for food and water. And I think this prophecy is important because the, the way he finished it, I think, is the most shocking. And he says, and we will, we will be happy to welcome them back. And I think that is something that has really influenced me in the sense that it's really important to remember, especially as Native people or peoples and communities that have been wronged, that at the core of who we are is still going to be love and forgiveness. And that's something we often forget. And it's a challenge, but it's something to really, that has really influenced me, I think
0: takes a big person, but it's necessary Mm -hmm. in order for us to just progress as a human society. So what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly?
1: That's a tough one. I think I'm going to probably go with what kind of we just talked about in terms of being able to know when to kind of switch gears and go focus on something else to give me some energy.
0: Yeah. What is your superpower?
1: Ooh, I feel like I would love flying, but since I can't fly, I would say my superpower is to, I think, keep going. (laughs) I think there's a lot Mm -hmm. of things where I just, I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, how am I still moving or how am I doing this right now? And sometimes you just have to find, you know, the things to kind of focus on. And when things get hard, find where you're going to grab your next piece of energy from.
0: Yeah. Persistence. That's your superpower. That's the one. (laughs) Yep. All right. What is your word for the year? Coronavirus.
1: That <laughs> seems the most relevant. The two
0: words. No.
1: I think along that line, though, will be rest. I think that's mm. something with the the forced isolation or self quarantined that is something that I'm like, oh, I do have some time, and there are ways to. It's basically the world. Like in some ways, like the world's telling me no for me and. That's something I struggled to always do, so yeah, I think that's a pretty it's going to be a very tangible lesson to learn over these next couple months,
0: yeah, slowing down and reflecting and just I guess being within yourself more, and we don't we don't get that as much, especially in in our society day and age. That's a good one. rest all right, so we've come to the end of our conversation here, so. How can we follow you on your journey?
1: Sure. I think one thing would be, I would say to go follow Sustainus, sign up for their listserv. I think there might be times where I'm phasing out as I get older. But I think in terms of a lot of the work that I was able to do with them, I hope a lot of that stays into the current work that they're doing. And I still will be around with them for a little bit. Other than that, I think... I have a Twitter, not very active on it. I'd say Instagram's the thing where I probably would post the most in terms of being able to follow new projects. And so my Instagram handle is MC where it's spelled E M underscore C E E underscore. Okay. And that's probably in terms of social media the the best one to keep up with me on.
0: Okay. All right. And then so is there anything else that you would like to add before before we end our session here.
1: I guess another way you could follow me if you're an academic nerd would be any sort of like research gate. Also, I'm on LinkedIn, but you can also just find things that I've written and read it if they're interested in the super nerdy versions of (laughs) sustainability. (laughs) Other than that, I don't think I have too much to add besides I hope everyone stays safe and takes care of their loved ones in this time.
0: Hey, all. Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our changemakers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.